All right, well, as a parent, I find myself wanting some things from my children. And some of the things that I want from my children, I care enough about to pretty much insist that they deliver what I want uh, from them. I want them to be respectful to me, to Michelle, to all of you, to everyone. And by the way, if you have any stories that they have not been, uh, I would be, I, I would be uh, happy to, to receive those stories after the service. <laughs> the first service thought that was hilarious. You guys thought it was mildly, mildly funny. <laughs> so I want respect from them so much that I pretty much insist that, that, that they act in a respectful manner. Now, there is grace when they don't meet the standard, but, but the standard doesn't change. The standard gets upheld, and that's what we're constantly calling them uh, to live up to. Uh, I want them to take care of their schoolwork. If there's an assignment that's due, I, I want it done. I want it turned in on time. I want them to put in enough effort uh, to their grades and to their studies to get good grades. Perfection is not required in our house. I thought that would be rather hypocritical in light of my own uh, educational experience. Uh, so we, we don't require perfection, but we do want them to do well. And while grace can be extended, uh, the expectation doesn't change. We, we want at least respectable uh, grades. Uh, my oldest son, Aaron's had a job for a little over a year now, and uh, I want him to show up at that job one time. By the way, he does a very good job of that. I want him to treat customers well. In all the stories he tells me, he does treat them very well. And, uh, and I want him to respond appropriately to supervisors. I, I want this, and I expect this uh, from him. And again, from what I can tell, he's doing a, doing a good job of delivering that. And, of course, there are all kind of examples we could give of these kind of things, uh, similar things that uh, you as parents want from your kids and that you want enough that you pretty much insist that they deliver what you want from them. But there's a reason, you know, besides being a jerk, that I want these things from my kids. It is because I also want these, uh, these things for my kids. I want them from them because I want them for them. Because I know that these things are going to serve them well in life. I know that these things are good for them. And I want good things for my kids. I want them to be respectful because learning to treat others with respect is vitally important to effectively functioning in society. And isn't it a sad thing that this is becoming such a problem? I mean, you can almost make an argument, at least it feels to us, I think, like society is starting to kind of crumble a little bit, in large part because everybody has forgotten how to interact respectfully uh, with each other. So I want them to be respectful because it's so important to functioning in society. I want them to have good relationships with uh, people they work with, with supervisors at work. If as they get older, if they become employers themselves, I want them to have good relationships with their uh, employees. I want respect from them because I want it for them, because I want them to be good husbands and fathers and friends. And so I want good relationships for them. And so I want respect from them. 
And we could go through uh, each of these examples that I gave in this very same way. But the point is simply that what I want from my kids is also what I want for my kids because these things are good for them. I know that they are good for them. I know they'll serve them well in life. And I know they will actually improve their lives. And so today, as we continue our series in 1 John by looking at chapter 2, verses 3 through 14, we're going to find out that God wants some things from us because God wants those same things for us because God knows that they are good for us. I feel like I remind, this, uh, remind us of this often here at, at Vineyard. Um, maybe I don't as much as I think, but I feel like I say this a lot. And that is that God has given us his commands, the commandments in the Bible, because as the creator of life, as the creator of each one of us, he knows how life works. He knows how we're going to get the best experience of life. And because he wants good for us, he gives us commands that serve our best interest if we follow them. And we're going to see that in today's passage. So let's look at 1 John 2, 3 through 14. Uh, I'll read. You follow along as I do. I believe it will be on the screen behind me. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. Now, remember, I assured you, John's tone here is of a loving father appealing to his children. But that does not change that the words he speaks are extremely challenging. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his words, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So today's reading begins with verse 3 telling us how we can know that we know God. Now in the ancient world, there were different understandings of, of how we come to know God. There was a significant difference in people's understanding of what it meant to know God, the Gentile world had a very different conception of knowing God than existed within Judaism and then within Christianity. Uh, William Barclay notes that in the 5th and 6th centuries before Christ, the Greek world was convinced that they could come to know God by the process of intellectual reasoning and argument. 
So you needed to have a superior intellect if you were going to come to know God. But one of the problems that existed with this view of knowing God is that one could amass a great deal of knowledge about God and still be a horrible human being. You'd just be an awful person. Intellectual reasoning about God and the things of God did not necessarily result in someone becoming a good person. And of course, this remains true today. Many people know an awful lot about God, and yet their knowledge is not translated into any type of of moral action. They're just not very good people. The later Greeks in the time period which provided the immediate background to the New Testament sought to find God through emotional experience. Passion plays were a popular thing where the story of a God would be, uh, would be told out, would be told on, on the stage and there would be lighting and music and perfumed incense that was all intended to create an emotional response to the observer of the play toward the God whose story was being told. This approach to knowing God was all about feeling. It wasn't intellectual. It was emotional. And this remains true as well. Many people have very intense spiritual feelings. They, they, they have a lot of emotional experiences related to God. And they feel that because they have these emotional, uh, what they feel are connections to God, that they have come to know God. The Jewish way of knowing God, their thought on how you came to know God, which is closely allied with the Christian understanding of knowing God, is very different. It isn't so much about intellectual pursuit and emotional experience, though both have their place and both are useful, but the Jewish and Christian understanding is that we come to know God by God's own revelation of himself. We come to know God by what he reveals to us about himself. God has revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed himself in Christ. And he has revealed himself in his written word, the Bible. And so while knowing God certainly does involve our intellect, and it does involve our emotions, we don't come to know him through a superior intellect. Aren't you thankful for that? Thank you, Lord, that I don't need a superior intellect to know you. Of course, if I did, I'd be okay, but uh, I'm thankful that, you know, isn't that what we... That's what a lot of you are thinking. Well, he may not need it, but I have it. But we don't come to know him through a superior intellect. We don't come to know him through emotional experiences as much as we come to know him through this very objective way. Our intellect, our emotions, those things are not objective. We come to know him in a very objective way by what he has clearly revealed to us about himself. It's not intellectual speculation. It's not subjective emotional connection, but it is what God has clearly revealed about himself in his word. And there are huge differences between these approaches to knowing God. If my intellect is free to speculate about God, I am then free 
to create a God of my own choosing. If my emotions are free to determine what is true about God, then God is always going to look like my emotions feel. I'm going to create a God that, that matches my feelings about every single topic. And my intellect and my emotions are both very subjective. But if knowing God comes by God's own revelation of himself, then I have to accept God as he reveals himself to be. I have to accept what God tells me about himself. And this is extremely important. Because the God who has revealed himself in Christ and in his written word, the Bible, has revealed himself. And he has revealed himself to be a holy God. That's not what my intellect or my emotions would probably have created. He reveals himself to be a holy God. And my intellect and my emotions would definitely have not done this part, this next part. His holiness has brought an obligation on everyone who worships him to be holy too. My intellect would not have come up with that one. My emotions would not have come up with that one. There's an obligation to be holy. John says we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. said with love, is a liar. With great love, I am calling you a liar, John says. (laughs) This lets us know that knowledge of God can only be proven by obedience to God. Let that sink in. Knowledge of God, knowing God can only be proven by obedience to God. Knowing God is not proven by who knows the most stuff about God. Knowing God is not proven by who can have the headiest discussions about all things related to God. Knowing God isn't proven by who can best explain the Trinity or who has the most intellectually impressive explanation of God's eternal existence and omniscience. Knowing God is is proven by obedience to God. And then John goes on. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Properly understood, not only is knowledge of God proven only by obedience to God, but true knowledge of God can only be gained through obedience to God. If I am unwilling to obey God, I can never grow in my understanding Of God. So knowledge of God is proven and it is gained through obedience to God. A.E. Brooke wrote, John can conceive of no real knowledge of God which which does not issue in obedience. C.H. Dodd, to know God is to experience his love in Christ and to return that love in obedience. And here's the point of sharing all this. What God wants from you and what God wants from me isn't a superior intellect. 
Though we're not against intellect. It's a great thing. Can be a great thing. We're not against that. That's not what God's after. And what God wants from us isn't an experience of the divine that is entirely based on emotions. Though an emotional connection with God is a good thing. And I would actually go so far as to say if you don't have an emotional connection with God, something is really wrong. Our emotions are involved in our relationship with God. But superior intellect and a lot of emotionalism is not what God is after from us. What God really wants from us is obedience. And he really wants obedience from us because like a good parent, he wants obedience for us because he knows that obedience is for our good. Yes, I, I believe God does want us to obey him because he deserves it. But that's not the only reason. He wants us to obey him because that's what is in our best interest. That's what will provide us with the best experience of life. And so knowing that God wants obedience from us and for us before, because it's for our good, we find commands here in 1 John that God expects us to obey. And the commands that we find, we also find throughout Scripture and throughout much of Scripture, these commands we're going to see in 1 John 2 here are identified as the greatest commandments. Jesus told us what the greatest commandments are in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Here's what it says. I think it'll be on the screen. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 35. An expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the greatest commandments. First of all, love God with your whole being. Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments are presented to us here in 1 John 2 in John's words. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 is an appeal to observe the greatest commandment to love God. It's all about loving God. Love for God is made complete by knowing his word. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? In obedience to the Father. The greatest command is to love God. And John says we love God by keeping his commands. That is what God wants from us. That is what God wants for us. Because he knows it's for our good. And let's just think for a minute about some of the most famous commands that God has given us. So the most famous set of commands God's given us are what? The Ten, the ten Commandments. We won't go through all of them. Uh, but, but let's look at a couple of them. One of the commandments is, don't steal. God wants us to not steal things from other people. It is in our best interest to not steal things from other people. Can we agree on that? Yes. yes. Only bad results from stealing. Like, you get exposed as a thief. You know, you almost always get found out if you steal something, right? Yeah, I mean, somewhere along the line, you almost always get discovered as being a thief. You get exposed. Steal the wrong thing, you can go to jail. Nothing good comes from stealing. 
So why does God give us the command? Just to boss us around? No, he gives us the command because he's trying to save us from heartache. He knows what is in our best interest. He knows how life will work best for us. Our life will be better if we don't steal from people than if we do. Somebody might beat you up if you steal from them. God knows this. And God doesn't want you beat up. And so he says, don't steal. Here's an important command. God tells us not to commit adultery. God wants this from us. Don't have sex with other people's spouse. That's what he wants from us. Now, this is a rhetorical question. Don't answer. Is it in our best interest or not to engage in adultery? It is not. Nothing good comes from it. We hurt our spouse. We hurt someone else's spouse. We disappoint our children. We potentially destroy our home. We might get beat up or killed. We might get someone else beat up or killed. Diseases spread the more people sleep around. Nothing good comes from adultery. You will never hear a sane person say this. My life really sucked until I had adultery. And once I did that, everything was great. No, nobody ever says that. No sane person ever says that. So what God wants from us, don't commit adultery. God wants for us. What's that for us? God wants you to love and obey him, yes, because he deserves it. But he wants you to love and obey him because it's what's in your best interest. And then there's something else that God wants from us. He wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He wants us to love our brothers and sisters. Verses 9 through 11 of today's passage. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. There's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. So God wants us to love our brothers and sisters. And we know from Matthew that God wants us to love our neighbors. This essentially means love everybody. But here in John 1, 1 John 2, the application is more specific. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And evidently, some that he was writing to were not doing a great job of this because John tells them, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is actually still in the darkness. And here's a test of whether or not we know God. We already saw that one test is, do we love God and keep his commands? And then here's another test of whether or not we know God. If we hate a brother or sister, John tells us we're still in darkness. We are not in the light that we claim, but we're still in darkness. And all good Christian people will respond to this and say, well, I don't hate anybody. I really, really dislike some people, but I don't hate anybody. But I think we need to think about this a little bit. 
and maybe consider this in some terms that we haven't considered before. And I want to credit again William Barclay for giving us four ways to think about that we regard people hatefully in disobedience to God. We may not consider these things to be hateful, but we probably ought to. We probably ought to. I'm stressing that these come from Barclay. So if you don't like them, blame him. (laughs) It qualifies as hateful when we regard others as negligible. This is when we live with the assumption that a brother or sister's needs, their sorrow, their welfare, their salvation have nothing to do with us. I need to make no investment in that whatsoever. They're negligible. This is when we live in such a self-centered way that really no one matters to us except us. And I want to give you some markers of a person like this. And if you see yourself in this list, it doesn't necessarily mean you're acting in a hateful manner um, regarding people as negligent. But the more things you find about yourself in this list, the more you need to say, okay, am I treating other people as negligible? It's a marker of a believer who never prays with another brother or sister. You know, it's time for prayer and suddenly we're late to an appointment. That doesn't mean that doesn't legitimately happen. But we never have time to pray for anybody else. A brother, uh, a Christian who never has time to write an encouraging note to a brother or sister. Never reaches out to anyone who appears to be sitting by themselves at a church event. Never goes out of their way to greet a new person. Never serves in any ministry that serves others either within the church or outside of the church. Our actions reveal that we view other people as negligible. They don't really matter. Barclay says it qualifies as hateful when we regard other people with contempt. Contempt. We consider others to be fools in comparison to our own superior intellectual capabilities. Everyone else's opinion is immediately dismissed as stupid. Basically, we look down on everyone. Everyone else is inferior to us in some way. Everyone. Qualifies as hateful when we regard other people as a nuisance. When we have thoughts, maybe, maybe we wouldn't articulate it quite this clearly, but, but we have thoughts like this. Sure, you know, I know our common faith in Christ has, you know, brought me together with all these other people in the church, but... My goodness, that's a motley group of people. And uh, I just have to tolerate them. It's an unfortunate necessity. Just have to tolerate them. The brother or sister who struggles with chronic health issues, we secretly get annoyed with their consistent request for prayer. We may not actually verbalize this, but in our own mind somewhere we have thoughts like this. You know, at some point, they just need to suck it up. I mean, (laughs) it's chronic, right? Chronic means it's just going to keep happening, so just suck it up. Stop droning about it all the time. 
Now, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying you're acting in a hateful way towards someone if there is a person who does require extra grace from you. You know, like that, that's, a, that's a real thing. There are, there are people that just require extra grace from us. You know, we have to ask God's help because that person just challenges us in some way. That's okay. You're, you've not acted in a hateful manner toward them. But it does mean that when you cross the line from a struggle with someone, that you realize you need God's help to extend more grace when you leave that and you start actually regarding the person as a nuisance, you're not acting in love. It is a hateful regard for a brother or sister that God calls you to love. Barclay says it qualifies as hateful when we regard other people as enemies. How do we view other people that we're serving in ministry with? Teammates working for a common goal or competitors trying to outdo each other. When you see a brother or sister with something new, a new car, a new house, a new dress, a new phone, are you happy for them? Or are you secretly angry? Probably that you don't have it yourself. And even though you would gladly take what they have since they have it and you don't, it's like, oh my gosh, they are so materialistic. I cannot believe it. Would you live in that house they live in? You know good well you would. (laughs) But they're materialistic. If in the privacy of your own mind, everything is a competition and everyone is a competitor, you view as an enemy. You're not walking in love. You're guarding people in a hateful way. I think we honor the text by reading it this way. Anyone who claims to be in the light but views his brother with contempt is still in the darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light but views her sisters as negligible is still in the darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light but views their brothers and sisters as a nuisance is still in the darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light but regards their brother or sister as an enemy is still in the darkness. God wants us to regard each other as the brothers and sisters that we are, not as enemies, not with contempt, not as negligible. And if that reference to brothers and sisters doesn't work for you because you have a bad relationship with your biological brothers and sisters, then I'll say it this way. He wants us to regard each other like brothers and sisters are supposed to. Brothers and sisters are created to love one another. That's what they're supposed to do. And so that's how God wants us to regard each other in the body of Christ. That's how God wants us to regard our neighbor. That's how God wants us to regard everyone. And this is actually not just what's best for them. It is what is best for us. And if we live this way, it brings us joy. It it is the path to finding joy in life. Love for God, obedience to his commands, love for others is the only kind of life that's ever going to bring joy. The person who loves God, the person who obeys God's commands avoids all of the heartache that comes from disobedience to God. They avoid the pain of being exposed as a liar. 
I'm going to pretend none of you have been exposed as a liar as adults, but think back to when you were a kid. Pretty much all of us told a lie at some point, and we got caught, and we got exposed. That was an awful feeling, wasn't it? It was a horrible feeling. When you get to adulthood and you're still being exposed as a liar, oh, it's just an awful thing. It's a sad thing. If we love God, obey his commands, we avoid that kind of pain. We avoid the pain of a broken family. And I know broken families are sometimes done to us, not our fault. But, but in some cases, they can be our fault. And if we love God, obey his commands, we can possibly avoid that pain. If we love God and obey his commands, we don't inflict pain on other people. If we love God and obey his commands, we avoid the pain of coveting things other people have that we have no chance of getting. You know how awful it is to just want something so bad, but you have no chance of getting it? If we obey God, if we allow our lives to be wrapped up in God, he can deliver us from that kind of pain. The person who loves God and obeys God's commands gets the most out of life, experiences God's peace and joy. And here's a really important thing. They get to the end of life with the ability to look back on their life with no regret. I'm 48 years old. I look back on my life. I have a number of things that I regret. Some of them that I regret pretty significantly. Here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want to get to 70, 80. I plan to live to 100. So 90, 100. <laughs> I, I don't want to get to 100 and look back on my life and like it's just a big regret. I don't want to do that. Loving God, obeying his commands allows us to get to the end of the life, uh, end of our lives, look back on our lives and not have to endure the pain of regret. And the person who loves their brothers and sisters like brothers and sisters ought to love each other. They provide a support network to their brothers and sisters. And in doing that, they increase the likelihood that they also gain a support network. When we regard others the way we should, here's something I think is really important. We recognize every interaction with another person created in the image of God as a precious moment to be fully appreciated. The mundane conversation no longer seems like a waste of time. The, hey, how's the weather? Did you enjoy the Buckeyes? You know, how'd work go this week? All this stuff that if we look at it one way, we just think it's space filler. Just, you know, courtesy. But if you look at it a, another way, these, these just mundane, everyday conversations can be viewed as a special moment between two people who face the same trials, love the same God, are both at some point going to have to walk through the door of death and then both are going to spend eternity, if they know Jesus, with Christ. When, we're, when we regard others as we should, setting up chairs can actually be a joyful experience Amen. rather than a drudgery. Eating at a potluck together isn't something to wrap up as quick as possible, but it's a special moment to be fully enjoyed. Praying for a brother with a chronic illness isn't a nuisance, but it is a privilege 
And we actually derive joy from engaging yet again in prayer for this person that God loves and that we love. God wants obedience to the greatest commandments from us because they're what's best for us and they bring us joy. Which is the whole reason that John is writing this letter. So that our joy would be complete. Verses 12 through 14, and then I'll wrap up. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I think that these verses give us a very helpful approach to giving God the obedience that he requires from us. Now remember that this is said in the context of these appeals to love God and, and obey his commands and these appeals to love our brothers and sisters. So here's what I think we're supposed to take from these verses. That a key, a helpful thing to giving obedience to God and doing that, realizing it is for our own good, is that number one, we need to remember what God has done for us and number two, we need to remember who we are. What's been done for us? Our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, if that doesn't produce in us a willingness to say, God, I want to obey your commands. If that doesn't create some love in us that results in saying, God, I want to be obedient to you. Something's off. That realization is supposed to create a love for God and a desire to serve him and be obedient to him. So what's been done for us? Our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Who are we? We are those who know the Father. We are those who through Christ have overcome the evil one. We are those the word of God lives in. And remember, John's writing to some people who aren't quite living up to what they should do. So I think there is like some hopeful prophetic utterance going on here. Like, like, like he's hopeful that, that this is going to be true. And because of that, the word of God is in us. And because of that, we are strong. We are strong. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves what's been done for us and remind ourselves who we are so that we'll actually live like the people that God has made us to be. You know this in your own, own life, at least probably. I have had many times in my life where there was some constraining influence brought into my life because I was interacting with someone who I knew, knew my grandparents, knew my parents, had held them in high regard, and I didn't want to let that family name down. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to be consistent with the view that the people had of me. I wanted to live up to what people had come to expect by knowing my grandparents or my parents. And this is the same idea. We remember who we are. We remember we belong to God. And as such, there is an expectation as to how we live. 
So remember who you are. Remember what's been done for you. Give God what he wants from you because God wants this from you because he wants it for you. It's best for you and it'll bring you joy. Now, before we stand and pray, I have a few action steps that I am encouraging you to take this week. We don't often do this, but I felt to do it this week. So if you've been taking notes, you can continue taking notes. If you haven't been taking notes, why don't you get out the sermon outline and jot these three things down, if you would. So the rapid movement show me that nobody was taking notes until this, <laughs> this moment. I know you don't need to. It's recorded. You just listen to it again three or four times and you'll get it. I know that's what you do. All right, so here's the first thing. Action step. Responding to today's message. Identify one area in your life where you're not walking in obedience. Yield that to God today. And purpose that this week you will walk in obedience in that area. Now, you might have 10 or 15 things you need to do this with. And if you get to all 10 or 15 this week, that's great. But if not, at least take this baby step. Okay, God, here's this one thing you've brought to my mind. I I yield that to you today, and I will walk in obedience this week and be mindful of that throughout the week. Here's the second action step. Think of at least one person that you've regarded with contempt, as a nuisance, as negligible, as an enemy, any of those. Repent for that attitude and find three positive ways to pray for that person this week. I was going to say send them a a card, but then I realized then they would know uh, (laughs) what, what was going on. And having said that, having said that, I did write some thank you notes this week that I failed to send. So if you get a thank you note from me this week, it does not mean, it does not mean that this was the case. All right? So just keep that in mind. Thank you for remembering that when the card arrives. So find three positive ways to pray for someone that you have held in some type of, at least the way Barclay describes it to us, some type of hateful regard. And here's the third thing, and I don't know why, but for some reason this one really resonated with me. And I don't even know if I'm explaining it well or did explain it well, but hopefully you'll get it. During some routine interaction this week, you know, something that's just mundane, something you would normally not even think about, you know, it's just like maybe you're jogging in the park, you sit down on the bench and somebody sits down and you shoot the breeze for a couple of minutes or You know, you're working together here in the church, setting up chairs or tearing down chairs or something that normally you just never think about. You just do it, you'd move on, never think about it again. So during some routine interaction this week, I want you to proactively guide your mind to consider that interaction a blessing, a special moment, a precious moment with another person created in God's image, facing many of the same trials and struggles you face, Living with the reality that someday we're going to walk through the door of death. Both of us are going to do this. And if it's a brother or sister living with the knowledge that someday we are going to be with Christ together forever. And regard this, proactively regard this moment as something special and precious 
rather than just a throwaway moment.